Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Tuesday morning, the 16th of November. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The health service is facing its greatest threat yet since the outset of the pandemic. At different times in the pandemic, different countries have had different experiences. It hasn't been uniform across Europe hasn't been uniform across the world. It's an all too familiar story but it's time once again to look at what measures are necessary to break the transmission of COVID-19. Now that the numbers are very high, uh, again I think we have to adjust our behaviours. The prospect is grim with Neffet saying that in a worst case scenario 500 people could need ICU care. That's despite 93% of the population being vaccinated. If we didn't have vaccination uh, we would be in a much much more difficult space right now. Having said that, the health service is being overrun by COVID patients. It's not going to be, it's not all about the vaccine. Behaviour is key. Compliance with guidelines, behaviour is key. So the Cabinet will meet today. It's expected uh, they'll be looking at uh, boosters for everyone over the age of 50 and uh, the immunocompromised advice to work at home wherever possible and expanding the use of COVID certs to gyms and hairdressers and the like. And if it haven't recommended that, uh, they've recommended that we give consideration to extending vaccination certs. The Taoiseach Michal Martin not sounding overly enthusiastic about what the CMO has been saying about COVID certs. And if it in the letter to us have not said and have not specified any particular location. Uh, but we'll, you know, I'm not going to speculate on any particular specific initiative prior to tonight's meeting and tomorrow's meeting, but we have specific advice in relation to the workplace. So what is all of this going to mean in the run-up to Christmas? Well, I think it's, it's not just about Christmas, it's about getting through this phase and it's about the impact on society, people's health um, and the health service. So I think we need to take it now steady and step by step. The Taoiseach, Michal Martin, speaking in Navan yesterday, the Cabinet meets uh, this morning, but bad as things might seem, it could be worse. We didn't have vaccination 
and the level of vaccination that we have, we would be in lockdown uh, right now. And some would say we should be. Louise O'Reilly is a TD for Dublin Fingal and Sinn Féin's spokesperson on enterprise, trade and employment and on the line with us. A very good morning to you and thank you indeed, as always, for joining us on the programme today. The approach here at this stage seems to be to break transmission without going into lockdown. Is that possible, do you think? Uh, I think, well, what I'm hoping to hear from the government today is some very clear guidance and some clear a, a clear idea of what their targets are and what they're thinking is. I think we've had a bit of mixed messaging and, and you know the government know this as well as I know it, you know it and your listeners know it. When the message is clear and simple people will follow it. When the message is mixed or when there's confusion that that makes it more difficult for people to, to play their part and actually Danny McConnell had a very good article in the Examiner over the weekend on precisely this, on the mixed messaging and the impact that it has. So what we need to hear from the government today is clarity and we need to hear some some strong guidance absolutely but for example if i could just give the working from home as an example michael if you mm. don't mind so a couple of weeks ago uh, the phased return to work was due to start okay and the honestly signaled that the phased return to work would start and then we had some members of government saying that people should be working from home to the greatest extent possible but when pressed about it the honest just said no the phased return to work is continuing so that left workers in a bit of a limbo now what i'm hoping to hear from the government today is clarity on this, is, uh, you know, advising workers not just around the work from home um, measure because not every worker can work from home. So we need to hear about ventilation, we need to hear about antigen testing and we need to hear about boosters Mm. and we need to hear from the government that they have a plan to step this up. The surge is not... I mean, we're in surge at the moment, but increasing the surge is not inevitable. It is going to be possible to take measures even at this stage to save off the worst of it. And as you see from the modelling that Nessus uh, produces, they always provide a worst case and a best case scenario. So what we want to hear from the government today is measures that are going to hit that target of best case scenario uh, as 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 much as we possibly mm. can. And I think there's but a lot of work... How good is that? I mean, that, that best case scenario is over 200 cases in ICU, is it not? Yes. And, uh, and can, indeed, can, the health service, can the health service cope in a best case scenario? Uh, it can't cope. There's no doubt about that in a worst case scenario when you're talking about 500 cases. Absolutely not. And, you know, I mean, the questions need to be answered by the government as to what they've done to get additional capacity into the health service. So if you remember, January this year... We had uh, very, very high case numbers, very high numbers within the hospitals. We were in the in the midst of the peak, and th- there was additional capacity in the hospitals by virtue of the fact that we weren't moving around. We were in lockdown, so there was no, uh, you know, th- there wasn't the normal trips, slips, and falls that end up in A and E or accidents and stuff like that. So the, the pressure was off the hospitals to a, to a large extent, and still they struggled. So the government have had a year now to put capacity in. We've only just had publication of their uh, of the of the winter plan. So I suppose we need to hear from the government today where they're going to source that additional capacity mm. because we know like several of our hospitals are now closed to visitors. They're cancelling scheduled procedures. But is and that what we want? Do we want more ICU beds so that we can facilitate all of the people who need intensive care or do we want to put the restrictions in place that stop people from getting so sick that they need to go into ICU? I think we need a combination of both, but capacity needs to be there, Michael, and that's really important. They need to, to source that capacity wherever they can get it, and we need to know that they we have some capability to scale up. I mean, I'm talking to workers in the health service, people mm. I know myself, I've known for years, they're very 
very nervous, they're yeah. anxious heading into this winter. And if you remember, like last year, we didn't have flu because we weren't circulating, so flu wasn't circulating. This year, the, the, the worry is they don't know the extent to which the flu is going to present itself. So again, okay. the government have an opportunity today to tell us where they're going to uh, put the capacity in and what measures they're going to take. I mean, Well, you're pretty well informed uh, and as Sinn Féin spokesperson on enterprise, uh, trade and employment, uh, I'm sure you've uh, got your own concerns uh, about what that means for people uh, who were in business and uh, people who are uh, working uh, this morning and uh, what uh, risk there is uh, to their employment and so on. Uh, You're saying more hospital beds uh, and more ICU beds, I take it as well, so that the health service would be in a position to cope. Uh, But what else would you do in tandem with that? Because you said you need to do both. Uh, So to restrict the transmission of uh, the virus, what else would you like to see happen? Would Would you like people to work from home when possible or not? And if they are working from home, uh, should they be able to go to a Christmas party with their colleagues? And where's the sense in that? Or if they can go out dancing then uh, at the weekend? Well, I think people should be working from home to the greatest extent possible. But where that's not possible, and this is where the government needs to step in with the clear guidance, we need to see guidance on ventilation, on antigen testing and on staggered attendance uh, to and from the workplace. So there are things that can be done even where you have to go to work to uh, reduce the the risk to to people there. So we need to see very clear guidance from the government in relation to that. We also need to hear from them about the booster programme. How is that going to be ramped up? How are we going to... uh, Well, they're talking about bringing the army out, aren't they? I mean, uh, Simon Coveney offered uh, assistance from uh, the Defence Forces uh, in order to get this out as quickly as possible to try and stop uh, this surge uh, and indeed uh, the amount of people being hospitalised. And I think it's to be rolled out to all of the over 50s and all of those who are immunocompromised. That's right. And but we, have, we don't have a timetable for that. All we have is a government statement that it's likely to, or a, a mm. leak, I think it was, that it's likely to be rolled out to the over 50s. But what we need to hear is a timetable. And that requires, if that requires a whole of government effort, well then, so be it. But I think we, we need to hear the timetable so that people can plan. With regard to, to working from home, the other thing we need to see is guidance on ventilation. So there's mm. been some limited guidance in relation to ventilation in our schools. And look, Michael, that's, that's another day's work is to talk about the schools. Let's just stick with the workplaces for the moment and acknowledging that schools are also workplaces we need to hear the detailed guidance in relation to ventilation mm. and in relation to the, the availability and otherwise of CO2 monitors so that people have the best chance if they have to go back to work if they are going to be in an environment where that you know mm. They, they, mm. they can maintain a social distance but they're there for a long well, time there's no doubt there's a lot of people there's a lot of people who have to go into the workplace if they're going to work and all of those people will tell you that if they're not allowed to go into the workplace they're unemployed because they've already been through that as a result of this pandemic so I'm sure they would welcome that idea but uh, does that include people working in nightclubs and pubs and restaurants should uh, hospitality stay open? Well I think we need to look at the use of antigen testing for surveillance uh, and Mm. we need to look at how that's going to contribute to keeping those workplaces safe and I think if we approach this from the point of view of maximising the safety, ensuring that everything is done and refreshing all okay. of the messages in relation to wash your hands, wear your masks, etc. Mm. I think it is possible that the government could today come out with a plan that's going to, to make a real difference. I just think they really need to be very tight on their messaging and right. they need to be very, very clear. Yeah. I don't think we need any more leaks or any more of the we're making an announcement like mm. we had with the nightclubs. We're making an announcement mm. but the, 
then we're going to tell you how it's going to work in a week's time. That was really unfair. And I hope they have learned some lessons from the, the mistakes made previously in relation. Well, they're to saying at the moment that if you're going to nightclubs, um, you should be taking an antigen tw- test twice a, a week. Uh, and of course, that can be very expensive. And now they're talking about subsidising them. I saw somewhere this morning, uh, uh, it may be three euro for a test. Is that the right approach, do you think, if uh, they go down that road? Absolutely. They need to maximise the number of people that can that can avail of these tests and price can't really be an inhibitor in that in that case. So, you know, as as, mm. as cost effective as they can make it. Remember the government are, are big players in this. They can buy in bulk in a way that you and I as you know, yeah. three euro is still a lot of money because if you're going to a nightclub regularly, I take it that everybody in your house should be tested twice weekly an antigen test, uh, and if it's six euro per person on a weekly basis, uh, I mean it soon adds up, doesn't it? It does, it does, but then you've got to balance that against the, you know, the potential impact of lost time off work. If you're, mm. you know, if you're doing surveillance and everyone else is doing surveillance, and you're opting yourself out of, situ- of social situations where, uh, on the basis of the antigen test. But then there is an all-around benefit with that, you know, and you've also got the benefit of not losing time out of work yourself. So I suppose, you know, there's swings and roundabouts with this. But again, we haven't heard from the government. We've heard, you know, we did hear from them previously that they weren't going to use antigen testing. I absolutely welcome that U-turn and it's something that Sinn Féin have called for for a long time. And I think, you know, there were unhelpful statements coming out, uh, you know, in relation to snake oil, etc. I think now that they have turned around and they, they, they've seen what other countries are doing and how it's working. I think it's a very welcome new turn on the part of the government. I'm glad that they're doing it. But we, again, need to see the details from them. I don't know at what price the government can buy antigen tests and make them available, but they will know and they need to share that information with us as soon as possible. And then there needs to be an information campaign in relation to how we use them, when we use them and how they contribute to the national effort. To, uh, to 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 flatten the curve as they as they used to say, or indeed just mm. to, to keep us out of the peak um, for the next couple of weeks. Okay, and should they extend the use of COVID certs, and should they police it better? I think the policing of it is interesting because uh, we know that um, I have to tell you my own experience, and it is limited. I would say that that my guys, I'm, I'm not I don't don't mm. get out a huge amount, but in my experience, I have been asked for my COVID cert where I have gone into uh, to places and I don't know if that's sometimes because maybe people might recognise you and they say okay well, we're going to ask I don't know if that's the case I know anecdotally I've spoken to other people they tell me that it is very hit and miss so yes there absolutely does need to be surveillance and I think we need to see a few more inspectors going into the health and safety authority so that there is those unannounced inspections as the right. restaurant association and others have said they don't want to, they won't be in the business of protecting people who aren't observing the rules so everybody should be doing that in the first instance with regard to the COVID search for other areas outside of, we we'll say, the non-voluntary, so socialising is voluntary. I mean, we all enjoy going out, but you don't have to do it. Um, but there are there are other areas. So gyms are a good example. People have purchased a membership for a gym. I'm not sure how it's possible, how it's going to be possible to enforce the COVID search there. But again, the government, if they're saying it has to happen, then they need to explain to gym owners what they say to people who have a gym membership but are unvaccinated because clearly they're not going to be in a position. I mean, these are premises that were closed for for a long time. They may not be in a position to offer refunds. So again, we need to hear from the government and from the insurance companies as to how that's going to work in a situation where, where this happens. I don't think that there would be a resistance from uh, from people in industry to check in the, the COVID cert. I mean, I think everybody wants us all to be safe. Well, if it's either or, I, I, either you check for certs or you close down, uh, I think the choice is obvious, isn't it? 
Yes, but if it's... And is that the case, do you believe? Do you, do, you, do you think that's the decision that has to be made, that either you introduce COVID certs in these circumstances or you shut them down? But again, we, I don't think the choice is going to be that stark. I think what we need to be looking at are the use of antigen tests, the use of ventilation and how places can stay open safely. Mm. That's, what, that's what business owners want. If you talk to them, they'll tell you, yes, we want to trade. Yes, we want to stay open. Mm. But we want to do it safely. No, but, but, no gym owner, no hairdresser. But talk no to the follow. intensive care doctors and they're so concerned about what's happening and what they're facing into and uh, the idea that you would need 500 intensive care unit beds is just non-thinkable absolutely and you know that's why there has to be we all have to be pulling in the same direction on this Michael there has to be a cross uh, across business across societal effort to ensure that we can uh, that that we don't get to that point but that does require talking to people in relation to Mm. their own specific business concerns and just to finish my point Mm. there isn't a business owner not a gym owner a hairdresser a pub owner any business owner across the state who wants their premises to become the site of infection. They don't. Nobody wants to do that. So therefore, we need the government plus business plus the workers and their representatives all working together to ensure that the workplaces are as safe as they can possibly be, that the message is refreshed and that people understand that as we head uh, into the next couple of weeks, it is about minimising your contacts, but also about making sure that when you are in your workplace, that you work with your employer to make it as safe as can possibly be. But that does require detailed guidance from government and that is what we are going to need to see today. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed, as always, for joining us. Uh, That's uh, Louise O'Reilly, who's a TD for Dublin Fingal and Sinn Féin's spokesperson on enterprise, trade and employment. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Now let's hear about a problem at Skullnave Cullum Kill in Tully Donnell in Toher. The principal of the school is upset because she says she has an impossible choice to make. Anne-Marie Ford is the principal and she's on the line. And a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Tell us about this impossible choice that you're faced with for some of the special needs children in the school. Good morning, Michael. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Good. So, Michael, I suppose um, my my concern uh, really was highlighted this year. We have four early intervention classes here in Tully Donald with children uh, ranging from age three to five with a diagnosis of ASD. So I feel very passionate about early intervention and what can be done. And the research would show, you know, the, how malleable the brain is at this stage and that with the right strategies and intervention, the prognosis for these children can be really, you know, improved. So I suppose this year what happened was um, two of our children from early intervention and another little boy also with a diagnosis of ASD transitioned into our junior infant class. Right. And uh, so, so in the early intervention class or in an ASD school-going class, uh, this, the class would be allocated one teacher and two SNAs. So each... Um, the ratio would be two uh, adults, uh, two children to one adult. Right. So I assumed, um, you know, that that with all this early intervention and the great work that was done and the good outcome for the children, that when these children transition into mainstream, which everybody celebrates in the community, in the school community here, that um, support would be continued for the children. Mm. So when I put in an application for the support, it was denied. Okay. And I was asked to use the allocation that I already had, 
which was allocated to other children to um to supplement for the children who had who had integrated into mainstream. Okay, so these are very young children who, who are on the autistic spectrum. That's right. Uh, and they're in special needs classes. Uh, is that a way of putting it? And you want to move them into mainstream classes? Yeah, so basically right. it, okay. it's, it's early intervention. So yeah. with early intervention, the, the hope would be that you would integrate into mainstream because that's, mm. you know, for any parent, they want their child with their neighbours and with their friends and integrating in the school community. So that that's what 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 we aim for here, mm. and and when 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 this was successful, uh, and we were able to integrate, um, there was no support given. Right, uh, and I take it that's because of the way SNAs are allocated, uh, that the ratio is greater in the special needs class, if you like, than in the mainstream yeah, class. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. obviously, yeah. in a, in a special class there needs to be um, um, more support given. However, the diagnosis for these children hadn't changed. Mm. So it feels like they're being penalised for their success for integrating into mainstream. Mm. You know, had these parents chosen to send their children to an ASD school-going class, which they could have done, they would have that, that support would have been continued. They would have been able to access the SNA. So, so their diagnosis hasn't changed and their need for assistance probably hasn't exactly, changed. Exactly, absolutely. Uh, and for every two children, there was one special needs assistance. Yes. Uh, and just remind me, uh, what does that change to now when they move into the other class? So basically, um, so basically these children would have had a class teacher and two SNAs yeah. in, with six children. So then they're moving into a classroom with potentially up to 20 or 30, depending on the school, uh, junior infants, uh, and they get nothing. Oh, nothing at all. Oh, nothing at all was allocated for them. No, and oh. and why? And you know, NCSE would say that you allocate, take from your already allocation. But but the problem is that those those allocations are already given for children already in the school, mm. and there's no extra there. So you're you're pulling from children who already have allocation. We have a little girl with medical needs mm. who's not getting any oversight or any help from an SNA. Um, at the minute, because I had to take the SNA and put that SNA in junior infants because it, the, the children wouldn't have managed mainstream without the help and support of the SNA. Mm. And, and are they your only options, or, or um, could you keep um, those children who are on the spectrum in the special needs class? Well, you see, th- this is the whole point, I suppose, Michael, and this yeah. is my concern. Mm. Yes, you could. They could go to an ASD school-going class. However, from a social point of view, mm. I mean, if you look at the DSM-5, which is the manual for uh, diagnostics, um, you know, you're looking at social interaction as a difficulty. You're looking at the communication being a difficulty and repetitive and restrictive behaviours. Mm. And really... What and st- looking- stigmatisation, I take it, as well. Well, yeah. exactly. Mm. And, mm. like, these, these, these children deserve and have a right to go to their own... Uh, mainstream school and with the proper help and support they can and they can integrate I have seen it happen here in Tully Donnell our little junior infants and the children who are on the spectrum usually have a difficulty with social interaction mm. when, when you put them in with their own age group their own peers they have no alternative but to integrate and to play because that's what children do and vice versa exactly mm. and, okay. so, and, so, and so these children are growing up with an acceptance and understanding of somebody who's different. And this is the society we want to create down the line. It's, it's, it's children growing up and understanding and accepting difference and, and embracing it. OK, well, you've made your point to the department. The department has rejected that point, but you're calling people to come together and to meet with you on Thursday, isn't it? Absolutely. 
absolutely in Monaster Voice Inn and the tickets are on Eventbrite but we're also hoping to live stream it on Facebook and to access the live stream of the event you can log on to Facebook and search Tully Donald School in the search engine click onto the page and then request to join and the live stream will appear in, the gr- in, in that group on the evening of the event so it's Tully Donald School um, on Facebook That's at 8 o'clock on Thursday 8pm on Thursday yes. Very good Okay Anne-Marie thank you indeed uh, Thanks for a million joining us. Michael Thanks You're very welcome Thank you very much thank indeed you. Thank you That's Anne-Marie Ford who's the principal of Skull Nave Cullum Kill in Tully Donald Toher Michael Reed on LMFM. As you know, the Taoiseach Michal Martin was in Navin yesterday. Earlier this morning in Navin, I met with quite a number of uh, traders here in Navin town. It's quite useful and uh, insightful in terms of their perspectives, having lived through COVID and worked through COVID in their respective businesses, ranging from childcare to hairdressing to hospitality to retail. First of all, they all you said without kind of sustained government supports they would not have been in a position to have survived uh, throughout the pandemic and that they're intact and in a good position um, and in terms of uh, their bigger enterprises and interestingly would have developed more online uh, as well as their bricks and mortar part of the business so it's interesting to get that feedback uh, and I also went to, to uh, to see the, the, the issue around the, the naval rail line in, in particular and the NTA strategy which you now gives the green light for that project and uh, we'll be very supportive of that in terms of the, uh, making sure we can get through planning. The Taoiseach Michal Martin was in Navin yesterday as uh, we already mentioned. He was speaking to reporters including Marco Driscoll who was there for LMFM. You touched on it there, the Navin rail line. Obviously it's not in the, the first phase of the strategy for the greater Dublin area so it'll be at least 10 years possibly before the project might even begin and about two weeks back we had 10,000 people on the streets here of Navin campaigning. What they said was a rally to save Navin Hospital, something that was attended by Senator Castle's behind you there just I suppose what, what you said to people here new housing developments going up but people saying that the existing infrastructure can't cope with the demand the number of people living here well I support the rail line and uh, Senator Cassis has been a strong advocate for that for many many years and I think the NTA strategy is very positive it's a game changer in respect of giving the green light to the project a lot will depend on planning getting it through planning getting the uh, the, the, the route selected in, our experience tells us that in most major infrastructure projects, it's the planning, the pre-construction phase is the longest uh, in, ten, in terms of getting all the permissions and so forth. So if that can be accelerated, and that will depend on a collective engagement by everybody, uh, then we can move that forward. Uh, because I think the biggest challenge we, we will have in relation to infrastructure will be actually getting projects delivered in a timely manner. Uh, it's, it's, it's difficult in Ireland today to get large projects delivered in a reasonable time frame because of all the processes, planning and so on that's involved. And that's so if it if, if for example it turned out that the the planning side of this was accelerated in a number I mean it can take quite a number of years to get all of the um, processes which are necessary uh, completed, uh, then we would be in a position to bring that forward um, in terms of actual construction. In terms of the hospital, Tisha, can you give a commitment yeah, to that the, the A&E service won't be caught? Yeah, but just in terms of the hospital, again, I mean, I've been through this throughout the length and breadth of the country. Um, what's important is, uh, in the first instance, where we've been expanding healthcare. 
we've been expanding in Navin and in other communities uh, across the country. So the number of people working in hospitals has increased significantly. So there can be no talk of downgrading hospitals. That doesn't tally with the reality of what has taken place. There are huge challenges in hospitals. We've got to get the best outcome for people. So the configuration of hospitals is about getting the best outcome and also getting the best first response to people if they have an accident, if they have a heart issue. So your, your whole EMT from the EMT, first responder, community first responder, that's key. Um, to, to getting, you know, to get to enabling people to have best survival. So can residents just, and so therefore, in terms of the hospital, then, uh, you know, again, uh, you know, we want to invest in the hospital uh, and in a way that enhances uh, facilities and services. So can residents be assured that well, the, the, Minister, the Minister for Health has paused that the, the, the proposals that were, were advanced, um, but I do think it needs a really informed discussion with the. Um, medical authorities in the first instance because very often it's the Royal Colleges of the various clinical disciplines who give a, a threshold in terms of what's allowed and what's, you know, what they feel, believe is best advised. It's a growing area so the demographics here are growing fairly dramatically and that will require expanded health services into the future. The Taoiseach, uh, Michal Martin, taking questions there from LMFM's Marco O'Driscoll. And as you've been hearing, the Taoiseach was in Navan yesterday and he was speaking with traders in the town uh, about a number of issues, including COVID. There are lessons to be learned from how antigen tests were deployed in, in, in the UK. Um, and, and so certainly I would support uh, subsidisation of, of antigen tests and making them more affordable, essentially, uh, for people over the coming period in particular and getting through the winter period. Uh, I think that would be uh, important. What was interesting actually this morning from my engagement with traders was um, they get the, the, wider, the wider picture that if we can keep COVID in check, we protect the economy. I mean, the economy ultimately suffers when COVID is not kept in check. So there's an inextricable link between the economy doing well and we keeping a lid on COVID. And I think they got that this morning. It was quite an interesting number of presentations or you know, comments on that point um, from some of the traders um, there um, because they do appreciate that there's been a very significant bounce back in the economy. In fact, one of the big issues they have is staffing, is getting staff uh, for their various enterprises. Uh, so that illustrates the, the fact that thousands and thousands of people have come back so the increased socialisation, the reopening of society, the reopening of the economy, invariably then, has, with, a, with a highly transmissible variant, has led to high case numbers. Uh, vaccinations has provided significant protection. Um, we will need additional rollout of the boosters. Um, and that's happening in the over 60 age cohort as we speak. It has happened in the over 80s and is happening amongst healthcare workers. Um, and um, so I think that will help us. Indeed. We'll see what the government ultimately decides uh, today after that Cabinet meeting. That was the Taoiseach yesterday in Navin. Micheál Martin was uh, speaking to reporters, including LMFM's Mark O'Driscoll. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the Department of Public Health North East is asking you to stay at home if you are not feeling well and to half your social activities, but well, at least half them for the next four weeks and with good reason because of a serious amount of cases of COVID here now, but not just now, but since uh, the onset of this pandemic. Let's hear a little bit more. Dr. Augustine. Pereira is uh, the Director of Public Health for the HSE Northeast. And a very good morning to you and thank you for joining us once again on the programme. Some 55,000 cases have been recorded in the Northeast. That's over four counties, isn't it, since March of 2020? 
Good morning, Michael, and thanks for having me on the show again. Uh, yes, that's right. So 55,000 cases so far um, since the start of the pandemic, and um, we've seen most of the cases in Louth and Mead, um, reflecting the population distribution in Louth and Mead, for instance, as well. Right. Um, that sounds like an awful lot of cases. It is. And what we are concerned about, and you're probably tired of hearing this in the news about COVID cases um, all over the country. Uh, we are seeing another surge in cases, um, and this is the fourth wave, and we often talk about it as the twin pe- uh, fourth wave with twin peaks. So we, we certainly are seeing an upsurge in the most recent weeks. For instance, during weeks 43 and weeks 44, we saw a significant increase. In week 44, we saw a 74% increase compared to the previous week. And the most recent week that we have data for is last week, which is week 45. We saw a further 19% increase. So we're seeing numbers in the Northeast um, close to about 3,000 cases in week 45, which is uh, the second highest we've seen ever through the, throughout the pandemic, the f- highest being in early January when we saw close to double that figure. But we are, I mean, quite concerned with the numbers we're mm. seeing. And, uh, and it's due to... Uh, several factors. Obviously, the uh, socialization that's happening is, is is clearly contributing. And um, we're in a different space altogether compared to January. We have a high proportion of vaccinated population, so we certainly are not thinking about any of the restrictive measures that we've seen in the past when, in January when we had no other options than um, those non, what we call as non-pharmaceutical interventions. Mm. Are, are those pharmaceutical interventions working against us in some sense? Because whilst the vaccines are wonderful and they're protecting us and they're stopping us from getting sick in some circumstances or needing hospital care or, or worse, uh, when people don't feel sick, they don't know they don't have COVID, is it uh, quite probable that there's a lot more COVID circulating than we're aware of? Oh, absolutely. And that's why I'm here to talk talk to you about it, because there's a lot more COVID. Just for instance, if we look at our 14-day incidence rates, we have some of the LEAs, I mean, these 14-day incidence rates are reported at local electoral area divisions. And some of our LEAs have rates close to 2,000 per 100,000. That is almost like saying two per 100, which is one in 50. So one in 50 in some neighbourhoods, are one in 50 people are having COVID in some neighbourhoods. But is, is, it possible, is it possible that that's the case everywhere? Because I think when you look at those figures, uh, you look at uh, Drogheda Urban, for example, it's one of the worst areas in the country, I think third worst. And you look at Dundalk, Carlingford, uh, and it's one of the best, I think uh, third from uh, the bottom. Uh, true, and uh, it is happening in several local electoral areas, and that's why I think this is um, something I'd like everyone to be aware of, that COVID is around you and in your neighbourhood. Uh, if we are looking at 1 in 50 over a 14-day period, if you just look back for 28 days, it's like saying there's 2 in 50 or mm. similar to 1 in 25. So if over a month, if you're looking at over a month, if, and if you look at 25 of your friends, one of them might have had COVID and have you been a close contact so it is really knocking at our doors. So what we are really asking people to do is if people are unwell and when we talk about um, symptoms, even mild symptoms, please stay at home if you're unwell. And um, this may be mild um, uh, nasal congestion or runny nose or blocked nose and or a sore throat or a headache, which sometimes you you know think, OK, that's mild and I'll, I have this commitment with someone else or I have arranged to meet someone or I have to be at work because I'm on rostered on 
please do reconsider. If you have symptoms, stay at home and contact others and let them know that you're unwell um, and you cannot attend for whatever reason it is. Mm. That is a really important step. Two, two things we're asking people to do. Stay at home if you're unwell and halve your social activities for the next four weeks. And the four weeks is for a specific reason because we know the socializing that's happening now has seeded the infection today and we'll see the uh, impact of that in the next 14 days. So uh, if we restrict or uh, halve our social activities for next four weeks, we're going to see a big difference in our numbers in our area and that will help us. Uh, four weeks takes us into mid-December. That will certainly help us in our uh, preparedness for the festive season as well. Are you finding that people are not feeling well and they're going out? Sorry, say that again. Are, are people feeling unwell and going out, going out socialising or going to work? Uh, I think anecdotally we are hearing about circumstances where that is happening and it could be because people think it's a mild symptom, it could not, it's not likely to be COVID, I'm not, I've not got COVID, but then later it progresses into more obvious COVID-like symptoms and then they're caught out because they, didn't, they obviously didn't want to uh, go out with obvious COVID symptoms, but they're not associating the mild symptoms to COVID. Uh, and hence they are probably interacting. So that, that's where the request is to consider uh, even mild mm. symptoms as possible COVID when we have so much COVID circulating. Okay. I have heard of a, a couple of uh, stories of people who've tested positive and have gone out. Have you heard of people like that? Uh, not a common story at all, but certainly, I mean, uh, if that is happening, I'll be very concerned. And uh, my advice is if you have COVID, you have to stay at home and it's a legal obligation to stay at home as well. Mm. Um, if you're feeling well and um, you don't have COVID, uh, you haven't tested positive for COVID and you feel well and you have no reason to believe you have COVID, uh, what would you uh, advise people to do? How would you advise people to behave? What advice are you giving to your family, for example? So if you're feeling well and um, there's um, no reason to uh, restrict movements and we, we, we are in a world where there's 93% of our population who are vaccinated, uh, I would still say halve all social activities for the next four weeks so that everyone plays a part. And what, what we need to do to uh, tackle the surge is once again drawn the collective action that we've been so good at during throughout the pandemic and how can we make a difference it's only through that collective action so my plea mm. to everyone is to um to tr respond to our ask from the department of public health in the northeast firstly to stay at home if you're unwell and secondly at least halve your social activities for the next four weeks okay would we be better to stay at home if uh, we were able to manage it uh, I, I wouldn't restrict every um, movement uh, mm. completely. Not, I'm not say, giving that message. Please don't get me wrong in that. Mm. Mm. But we can all make um, decisions about our discretionary contacts uh, that, and take a decision on halving that, or at least halving that, if possible. To if you're able to do, go further, that's great. 
but at least have our social contacts. Okay. Do you care to tell me what you'd like to hear from the government today? Because there's a, a number of measures that they may introduce. They may extend the COVID passes uh, to hairdressers and gyms. They may extend the boosters. Um, we're hearing that it'll be to the over 50s and people who are immunocompromised. Uh, they may also uh, think of uh, things like mask wearing at big events outdoors uh, and uh, that that uh, people should work from home. Uh, and these are said to be some of uh, the considerations. What would you like uh, the government uh, to be considering uh, on a national level? I would certainly wait to hear what government has to say and follow the government advice. But th- let me take this opportunity mm. to encourage anyone who's not had their vaccine yet to please go ahead and get their vaccine. We've had a good uptake after we've uh, reached out to uh, individuals who have not yet vaccinated so far. Uh, for instance, in uh, some areas in Cavan and Monaghan, uh, we've, uh, in the month of October, we had about 29% of people coming forward for their vaccine get their first dose. And in Monaghan, I think it was close to 33%. So excellent response from people who are listening to us. Um, so please come forward, get your vaccine. If you've not yet had the vaccine, it's never too late. And we are, the vaccination centers are there um, with open arms trying to uh, and will welcome you to get your first dose. OK, um, we've spoken about uh, people who won't uh, get vaccinated for various reasons uh, before uh, Dr. Pereira. Maybe um, I can uh, bring you a comment uh, if you'd like to take on what's being said here. Peter is somebody who contacts us regularly and I don't think you're going to change Peter's mind uh, because I think uh, many people uh, listening to us have tried to change his mind over the course of the last year and a half or however long it is since March of 2020 but I I just think it's interesting um, now that you're here with us as an expert in public health uh, maybe to put some of uh, the points that he's making as I say I don't think you'll change his mind uh, but he says it's the ones who are jabbed that are filling up the hospital beds well, we know that um, over 60% of the cases in ICU are unvaccinated. Uh, so we, we also know that about 10, no, less than 10 percentage, in fact, nationally, when we look at it nationally, it's about 3% of our eligible population are unvaccinated. Uh, sorry, 7%, 93% are vaccinated. So 7% are unvaccinated. If 7% of our population are contributing to close to 60% of the hospital beds, okay. that tells us a story there. That doesn't add up. Now, P- Peter says uh, that's a cover-up. Not at all. These are actual mm. figures. I mean, these right. are stats from the HSE. So, um, look, vaccines protect. Vaccines mm. have been protecting uh, the most vulnerable, and I'm really pleased with the impact it's had in residential care facilities and in the older population who've also been boosted, now had the third dose um, now. Uh, we've also uh, noticed that the case numbers in the over 80s has plummeted yet again in the most recent times. When case numbers are going yeah. up in all other ages, that is uh, again an evidence of the impact of the vaccine mm. and the third dose has certainly had a protective effect on those vulnerable individuals. And that's in line with the experience uh, in Israel as well. Of in, course. Internationally yeah. and yeah. it's in line with experience yeah. in many countries and yeah. Yeah. we have it in our country as well yeah. and I'm pleased yeah. that that is happening here and we are able to protect the most vulnerable. Okay. I'll just give you one more point out of Peter's text and as I don't know. Foolish as this seems, uh, this is what is being said. Uh, He says um, it's a cover-up and they know that people will revolt when the truth gets out. 
uh, because he says what they're doing is putting a bioweapon into people's arms and now it's doing its job. It was intended to kill large sections of our population, a world depopulation programme. Uh, Michael, we know the impact vaccination has had on so many other diseases. Uh, It's the next best thing after clean drinking water from a public health intervention perspective. So uh, I I think the world knows about the impact of vaccines on um, human health. COVID is no different and COVID vaccine has saved lives, saved numerous lives throughout the world. Uh, yes, there is the issue about you no know, vaccine equity in low and middle income countries, and mm. that's for governments to consider and think about. And uh, WHO have been very strong in their response and uh, about vaccine equity from a national perspective. But I think vaccines uh, have cert- the COVID vaccine has certainly played its part in saving numerous lives, especially during the fourth wave. If we didn't have the protection of the vaccines, we would have seen our hospitals. Um, uh, really inundated with uh, admissions, both into hospitals and ICU beds as well. So we are certainly benefiting from the impact that our significant vaccination rollout has had. Uh, And our graveyards fill up as well, of course. Uh, Thank you for your patience. Uh, I think there was a couple of points in reading that message to you, as silly as it may have sounded, but uh, uh, perhaps uh, people will have heard <laughs> your reaction to it, uh, but also people may not be aware that that's why, or one of uh, the lines of thought uh, that uh, belongs uh, to people who are deciding not to get vaccinated, and maybe people could talk some sense uh, to people who are thinking that way. I don't know where they're getting all of that nonsense from, but uh, thank you indeed, as I say, for your patience and, and talking through that with us. Uh, Thanks, Michael. Uh, and uh, can I also yeah. ask anyone out there, if you know someone who's not yet had the vaccine, word of mouth is the best yeah. promotion. So if you can talk to them, that will be excellent. And yeah. uh, please also stay at home if you're unwell and at least halve your social activities for the next four weeks. OK, thank you indeed, as I say, for joining us as always. That's uh, Dr. Augustine Pereira, who's uh, Director of Public Health Northeast. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Uh, thanks uh, to Pat uh, McDade, uh, who's texting uh, the programme saying antigen testing has become the dog whistle of the vaccine hesitant and anti-vaxxers and their populist apologisers. We should all play our part in fighting this plague as a pensioner and taxpayer. I hope the government ensures after a short free period to, to arrest the current spike that no free antigen tests are given without the production of a digital COVID cert and current as ID. If you're not vaccinated and you want and you want to use an antigen test to get into a nightclub, pay for it yourself, says Pat McDade in his message. Thank you indeed uh, for that. Uh, Anne is in Drogheda. She thinks that the government is being complacent. She said Yesterday, the matter reached capacity in ICU. That's a worry. What if someone has a heart attack and needs to be treated? She thinks restrictions should be implemented ASAP before all hospitals end up in the same situation. Patient care has to take priority over everything else. Thank you indeed. And thanks to Seamus as well. Seamus was on the phone. He's in Dundalk and he says, I'm very pro-vaccine and have had my two jabs. But how are we back in this situation with so many of the, the population jabbed? I find it's hard to understand it. It seems like we're going backwards instead of forwards and you'd wonder now if we'll be in the same position this Christmas as we were last. Thanks, Seamus. 
I think I'm starting to wonder if we'll be in the same position next Christmas, the Christmas after this one, that is, uh, because it, it seems as though the virus is mutating, it's becoming more virulent, uh, it's uh, breaking through the vaccines and people may not be getting as sick, uh, but it's obviously a very serious problem when they do. And that is why it's posing such a risk to the health service as things stand. Now, let's uh, talk about online safety because yesterday the Minister for Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gatok, Sport and Media, Catherine Martin, launched a comprehensive report of a national survey of children, their parents and adults regarding online safety. Indeed, uh, they spoke to some 765 children between 9 and 17 years of age, 765 parents and 387 other adults. Uh, Amongst other things, they wanted to find out how people use uh, the internet uh, and uh, what risks uh, they perceive to be there, as well as what benefits they perceive to be there. And it makes for some interesting reading. Fiona Jennings is Senior Policy and Public Affairs Manager with uh, the ISPCC. And a very good morning to you, Fiona, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. There's a a lot to be worried about, uh, I think, uh, in this report that uh, comes from the National Advisory Council for Online Safety. Uh, but there's a, a lot of positive things being said by people about the internet as well. Yeah, good morning, Michael. It is, um, and as you said there, it is the National Advisory Council for Online Safety um, who published the research yesterday. Um, and it is a national survey, so it's nationally representative, which is great. And I suppose the, the reason why this survey was carried out in the first place was so that um, I suppose that we could build policy, education, support responses that would be responding to what exactly is going on for children and young people in Ireland. So there would be a lot of research, I suppose, in other countries around how children and young people use um, internet-enabled devices, use the internet. um, And it's great to have this um, and to have this understanding as to how our children in Ireland are actually using it. Okay, and there's a, a lot of concern as well. Parents are, are very concerned, it would seem, to a, a large degree about what happens online or what might happen to their children online or how they're treated online or what material they're looking at when they are online. Uh, but there's a disconnect between that concern and what's happening uh, because parents believe their children are actually much safer than the children are saying they are, it seems. Yeah, and one of the other things that stuck out as well was that um, kind of over half the parents say that they support their child or young person if something um, uh, something happens online, we'll say that they need help with. Whereas I think it was just kind of maybe one in five children who were saying that they actually sought help um, for what was going on online. So there's a little bit of a disparity there as well. Um, so I suppose some of the key things that stuck out for us um, in the ISPCC was around, um, I suppose, the amount of children and young people, um, I suppose, how they access um, the internet on a daily basis. So 70% of them say that they use a smartphone. That was certainly the most popular way Mm. of how people go online. And the children that we're talking about, I should say, are nine, nine years of age to 17 years of age. So that was the age group. And in that lower age group, nine to 10 year olds, that a quarter, just over a quarter of each of them um, reported that they had a social media profile. And that's concerning because 
the minimum age for many um, social media platforms to set up a profile is actually age 13. Mm. So to hear that or to read that one in four of nine to 10 year olds have a profile, um, that would be concerning. And it would be concerning because, you know, they wouldn't be able to avail of the safeguards that would be in place um, for children if they're, I suppose, if they're setting up these profiles at such a young age. So, yeah, OK. Um, and well, they're trying to get to 15. Uh, nearly all of the kids have uh, a social media profile. 87% of the 15 to 17 year olds. YouTube, Snapchat, Instagram and Facebook uh, seem to be the most popular of uh, the apps. Uh, and uh, there's a, a lot in this report uh, that mirrors uh, what the Facebook whistleblower Francis Hogan was uh, saying uh, about how children are directed to, to sites uh, that could be harmful to them. Uh, and I think there's probably a lot of concern about teenage girls and weight loss uh, as a, a result of uh, what uh, this particular survey is saying. 23% of 13 to 17 year old girls and 12% of boys in the same age group are looking at contact that promotes way of being very thin. Yeah, so that was one thing that stood out. And it's predominantly girls as well that reported um uh, that this content was being um, exposed to them or was appearing in their particular timelines. So that certainly is concerning. Um, and I suppose the um, online bullying as well and people being nasty online, that was um, top a top thing that could come out of the survey as mm. well. And these, it's really important that we know all these things so that we're able to design, I suppose, education re- responses that talk to children about these particular issues and talks to them, I suppose, first of all, alerting them to what they actually are, that they know that they're inappropriate and how to deal with them as well online. Mm. Self-harm, suicide, people being nasty, uh, as you said, violent images of people hurting other people or animals and sex Sexual messages are all commonplace, it seems, when children go on to the internet. Uh, And that, I'm sure most people would uh, agree, is far from ideal. Uh, It's dangerous, uh, but all the more dangerous for young girls. Yeah, I mean, none of these issues are not concerning. And again, I suppose while we say ourselves in the ISPCC who provide the Childline service, you know, we'd often hear children and young people talking about the different things they are exposed to online and the concerns that they would have around them. So I suppose what we really need is I suppose education, first of all, that responds to their actual needs and concerns and supports them and how to deal with this content when they do see it. But secondly, as well, and I know there's a lot happening with um, in Minister Martin's department around um, legislation as well that's forthcoming around regulating um, social media platforms where they will be developing binding codes that platforms will have to adhere to. And part of that will be how they actually manage this type of content and how they um, how they prevent it, I suppose, mm. appearing in, in children's timelines in the first place. And police and, it and uh, the much talked about online safety commissioner. That's right. Mm. So the online safety commissioner as well, exactly, uh, Michael, is part of um, the proposals um, that are forthcoming from Minister Martin's department. And I suppose with the online safety commissioner, one thing that the ISPCC has been pushing for in particular is that there is an individual complaints mechanism available to children and young people so that you know if they um, see this type of content or they're exposed to this type of behaviour that you know if they do not get an effective mm. or efficient response from 
the the, um, the the offending platform that they have a route to go to the online safety commissioner to appeal that the content be removed. Okay, and we don't want to frighten people. So there is people. lots of things happening. There's a lot of good on the internet as well, and it's not necessarily the case uh, that children are experiencing uh, these things all of the time. But it's something I I gather that our our listeners should be mindful of and uh, to think about and to check in with their children. Yeah, very much so. And, you know, I'm glad you said that because that is one thing that did come through in the survey as well, that most children and young people agree that there are good things online for children their age and you know the majority of children are going online to watch video clips you know listening to music and stay connected with families mm. so they are all hugely positive things um but it's very important yep you know the message for parents is and carers you know or you know anybody that has a young person in their lives is you know it's just as important to talk about you know the positives as well as i suppose the risks that are out there as well Okay, we leave there for the moment. Thank you, as always, for joining us today. That's uh, Fiona Jennings, Senior Policy and Public Affairs Manager with the ISPCC. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, one in four women in uh, this country has been abused by a current or a former partner. Who do they talk to? Well, it's an interesting question uh, and uh, one that perhaps Margaret O'Rourke Doherty can answer. She's uh, the Chief Executive Officer of Hair and Beauty Industry Confederation. And a very good morning to you, Margaret, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Uh, I take it it's not always uh, the case uh, that uh, women will uh, talk uh, to people when they're getting their hair cut or uh, whatever the case is, uh, but uh, there is a level of trust between your members and uh, the women who they serve. Good morning. Yes, there is most definitely. Um, I suppose when people attend salons, they build up long relationships um, and a trusted relationship uh, with you know between like, the clients and professional. Um, so we felt that it was this is a good relationship, and we're very happy to partner with Women's Aid on this campaign. And um, I suppose what it is for your listeners. It's a national campaign that we're rolling out um, through our salons, uh, which are based all over the country. And mm. um, that's, you know, hairdressers and, and beauty therapists and nail techs and, and so on and so forth, um, where we're giving them tangible assets and tools to be able to help um, help equip them, I suppose, if um, a client decides to confide in them, but also to offer, you know, a safe space for women on that offer solidarity. Um, you know, and just a, an area where they, you know, they can feel that they can they can talk and and, and feel listened to and, mm. and believed um, when 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 they're in these situations. I'm just wondering where this idea came from. Was it Women's Aid looking at uh, salons and identifying that as a place where people talk to each other and confide in each other, uh, as you said, or uh, was it your members uh, who were hearing stories from women uh, as? they were cutting their hair and so on. Yeah, look, I, I suppose it, it's, it's a natural fit, we believe, um, for us to partner with Women's Aid. Um, I suppose we we approached Women's Aid months ago to, to work on a campaign with us, something that was kind of robust and tangible, um, you know, rather than kind of just, you know, one one thing we wanted to build out a long campaign um, that we can really help uh, resource uh, salons. You know, when we look at our, our own industry, you know, we're almost 30,000 of the workforce you know, and 88.9% of those are, are female. So within our own workforce, we're saying, you know, we don't know who is affected by this. Mm. So we want to be able to support, firstly, our own workforce, but also our clients in our community. And, um, you know, the solution to uh, resolving issues around domestic abuse 
is, you know, to make this, um, uh, you know, resourced in the community for people to understand that this can happen to anybody. It's, you know, it's not based on age or, you know, your religion or, or your race or your your class. There's, there's none, none of that comes into this. This can happen to anybody. Mm. And as you said, one in four is a very, very high statistic. So we feel that we're, we're in a good position to be able to help. And yes, you know, from time to time, salon owners do hear things. And sometimes those, you know, conversations or, you know, they don't, they don't necessarily sit well. And, you know, they mightn't be able to offer the right advice. Yeah. Or, you know, they, they, so we just wanted to be able to resource them. And I suppose there's an element of being proactive in this. Mm. To offer something more than empathy, which in yeah, itself exactly, is very exactly. important, uh, I'm sure, but uh, difficult uh, when you don't have uh, the tools, especially with something that's always being shrouded in silence. Uh, I mean, domestic violence is quite often looked on as a domestic. Uh, it wouldn't interfere in somebody else's relationship or you're uh, not sure what's going on uh, because you're told she's walked into doors or it's happened behind closed doors or whatever. And quite often there's an element of fear with women who are victims of a domestic abuse that they don't want to seek out help for fear of it turning out even worse for them but in going to their local beauty salon or hair salon they're not doing anything out of the ordinary and there might be something very good about that yeah like that, that, that's it like it, it is a safe space and i and i suppose like the, the one thing i would point out here here is our members we're not professionals in this area and what we but what we can do is we can offer a safe space. We can listen. We can believe people. We can help signpost, and we can do that in a non-judgmental way. And I think those are important elements. Like you know, what we've done is we we're providing salons, which will land on the on the doors of salons over this week, and um, is is a re- resource pack. And in that, you know, there is posters, and it, these are you know these resources are for both you know the professionals, but also for people in the community because. You know, you're sitting there, you could be in the salon for an hour. And mm. um, we're providing salons with little decal stickers that go on the mirrors. And, you know, if you're sitting there while you're getting your hair done or you're, you're getting your, your beauty treatment done, you might just take a few minutes just to scan those codes. And actually what that will do will, will bring you to Women's Aid website where you can actually understand and read the, the signs of domestic abuse. You can mm. understand and, and read, you know, how to respond and refer. And... Um, but also, you might not want to talk to anybody about it, but actually just by taking a few minutes just to read the information, that might trigger something in you to say, that resonates with me, mm. or that resonates with me about somebody I know, mm. and I might be able to. So it, 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 it's opening up a conversation mm. as well, and it's and kind of removing the stigma around this. Yeah, and there's four very graphic uh, personal stories uh, on the website, Siobhan's story, Jane's story, Suzanne's story, and Maureen's story. Uh, and I think they're all well worth reading uh, there's a video uh, as well um, of, of women telling uh, their own experiences and I, I was watching that yesterday and one, one of the women saying that despite everything he did to me uh, I, I didn't consider it to be abuse it seemed to be a remarkable situation one that she found to be remarkable now that she'd come out the other side I think yeah, and I, I, I think like our, you know, our, our, our version of abuse, like abuse, is not always, you know, physical violence. Like there's sexual violence, there's coercive control, there's, you know, you know, economic. Like there's there's many elements to what abuse looks like, and it, you know, kind of that that standard stereotypical of of what we all perceive it to be isn't necessarily. So it is worth taking the time to read these things and, yeah. and really understand and kind of delve a little bit deeper into it, and um, because as I said, it can happen to anybody, and you know one in four is a very high statistic and it's to break these down and by us all in our communities being able to do this it it does help 
yeah, well, I think it will. And well done to you uh, for that uh, and to all of your members and uh, to Women's Aid. As you say, people will see the posters uh, and uh, there'll be the stickers on the mirrors with the QR codes, which will bring them to Women's Aid website and uh, the National Free Phone Helpline. Uh, that's womensaid.ie. Uh, and uh, the Free Phone Helpline is one eight hundred three four one nine hundred. That's one eight hundred three four one nine hundred. Thank you for talking to us uh, this morning, Margaret. Thank you very much. Thank you indeed. Margaret O'Rourke Doherty, who's uh, the Chief Executive Officer of HABIC, that's the Hair and Beauty Industry Confederation. And let me bring you some more of uh, the comments uh, that have been coming uh, to us uh, this morning because we've been flooded with comments and uh, apologies if we haven't come to yours yet, but uh, an awful lot of people in touch with us. It's great to be getting all this feedback. Uh, I think we could do with an extra two or three hours on the programme today to get through them all, though. Uh, A listener on WhatsApp saying there's very little point in pushing for more ICU and hospital beds when there aren't enough nurses or support services to help man any of the extra beds. There are barely enough staff to man the beds that we have already. Uh, Maggie in touch to say she thinks schools should be closed in a circuit breaker approach maybe closed for two to three weeks to give us a chance to get the case numbers back down you only have to look at uh, the primary and secondary schools to see that mask wearing is so bad amongst the teenagers uh, that they become very lazy about it secondary school students are gathering in large groups yes they have to wear a mask on school grounds but with 95% of them as soon as they hit the school gates the masks come off we've been told throughout this pandemic uh, that children are super spreaders so measures need to be taken to ensure that everyone is as safe as possible. Uh, Another call from Philip, who is in Navin, and Philip believes uh, that the time has come to make COVID vaccinations compulsory. He says if people don't comply, they shouldn't be allowed anywhere. Yeah, but what do you do about somebody like Peter, who seems to think uh, that they're sticking some sort of bio-war weapon into you to kill you? Uh, God, I, I don't know. Uh, it's ridiculous, I know, Philip. Uh, um, I don't know. Uh, Gemma's been in touch. Gemma was on Facebook uh, when she sent us a message wondering if the government should consider closing the schools at least 10 days earlier for the Christmas break. That would allow everyone to enjoy Christmas with their families. Imagine being a teacher and being told during Christmas week there were three or more positive cases in the class. I've been hearing about that and I've been hearing uh, about people who've discovered that but they weren't told it or they discovered that the teacher had it. Um, uh, Caller wants to know if uh, Peter smokes or if he takes a drink. Does he take any medicine if he has a headache or if he is feeling unwell? Uh, I take it uh, that's uh, Peter who uh, thinks that they're putting something into us to kill us in these vaccines. Um, I presume I don't know the answer to that Um, uh, uh, another uh, call from somebody uh, who didn't want us uh, to publish their name saying good morning I just want to highlight what happened yesterday my mother has dementia and has been in step down in Louth Hospital waiting for a place in a nursing home up until yesterday we were allowed one visit a day for half an hour which the family had been doing all alone, uh, all along. Only one visitor allowed in each ward at a time. But yesterday, families were told we can only visit once a week from yesterday. Uh, I don't understand why this has happened. And on the other hand, it's OK if you want to go into a packed sports stadium or into a pub or into a nightclub. My mother needs this contact with her family, even if we were reduced to maybe three visits a week. 
I just think it's so unfair as we're all being careful and wearing masks and we're doing all of that all of the time. It's just cruel. I also want to say that we're happy with the care my mother is getting in the Louth Hospital. The staff are brilliant. I don't want my name mentioned. Okay, thank you indeed. Um, We'll make uh, contact with the HSE and try and get an explanation for you for that. Uh, I'm not sure though that... uh, We'll get one that will be to your satisfaction. But thank you indeed uh, for making your point on the programme with us today. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Time now, as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents Garda are investigating locally and perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Garda Sharon White of RD Station joins us for the report this week. Good morning to you. We're going to start in Ashburn where Garda are investigating two burglaries. That's right. Good morning, Michael. Um, guards in Ashburn are investigating these two burglaries, which occurred in the Kilbride and the Ballybin Road areas. They happened on the 8th of November. That happens between 5pm and 7.45pm. So we'd ask anybody who had been in either of these areas during the time and noticed anybody or anything suspicious, we asked them to contact Ashburn Guard Station. Okay, uh, an ongoing appeal into how a house was broken into twice, uh, and this happened at the beginning of the month. Uh, that's right. This uh, incident is quite unusual, as the same house was broken into in two days, two days uh, one after another. So on the third of November, the house was entered during the day, and it was entered through a kitchen window. But the window was actually damaged by the burglars, and a small amount of property was taken on that day. And two days later then, on the 5th of November, the house was broken into again uh, through the damaged kitchen window and there was an amount of jewellery taken. So Gardaí are appealing for information in relation to both of these incidents actually, which happened on Wednesday the 3rd and Friday the 5th of November. The Friday one happened between 5pm and 6pm, so it's a short time period. So if you saw anything suspicious in this area, we'd ask you to contact the guards in RD. That was in Mulla Valley in Louth. Okay, next to uh, fatal road uh, traffic uh, collision. Uh, this happened a, a week ago, Gardy, hoping uh, that uh, somebody may have witnessed what happened. That's right. Guards in Navan are appealing for witnesses to this fatal collision between a truck and a car, which happened on the Bush Road in Gibbstown. It happened at approximately 4.40pm on Tuesday the 9th of November. The driver of the car was a woman in her 40s who was the only occupant and she was pronounced dead at the scene. The driver of the truck was uninjured. The guards are appealing to any road users who were travelling in the area at the time and who may have camera footage, dash cam or anyone with any information. We'd ask them to contact Navangard Station or the confidential guard at the telephone line. To Dundalk next and uh, the theft of a handbag. That's right. Guards in Dundalk are investigating a theft uh, which occurred yesterday, um, shortly after 2pm in the Long Walk area of Dundalk. So no arrests have been made yet and investigations are continuing. But if anybody has any information, the guards in Dundalk are investigating this one. A lot of burglaries again uh, this week. Uh, another one to report on next. Uh, this particular one at Bellingham Castle. That's right. Uh, last Friday morning between 1am and 3am, a lone male forced his way into Bellingham Castle, damaging the side door. He made his way through the castle and he took some property. And although we have access to some CCTV footage and hope to progress the investigation, we're asking the residents of Castle Bellingham to contact us if they were around the village between 1am and 3am last Friday morning. They could have some information that would assist this investigation. Okay, you're looking for information if anybody can help you about some counterfeit money that's in circulation, but I I gather there's also a a warning to local business owners. 
Yeah, it's more to highlight this uh, incident to other businesses in the area and that we want to make them aware of counterfeit Scottish £50 notes which were tendered in a shop in Drogheda. So we ask that all the businesses to be aware that this uh, denomination, the Scottish £50 note, was used uh, in a shop in Drogheda and it is counterfeit. Okay. Uh, we're going to conclude uh, with a, a burglary that occurred in Midlouth. That's right. Uh, the last burglary of the morning, I promise. It happened in Mansfield Town in the Midlouth area last Tuesday, the 9th of November. Now, there was a very short time span for this, so we know it happened between 12.50 and uh, 1.30 p.m. A house was entered and the keys to a black Toyota Land Cruiser were stolen, which in turn led to the Land Cruiser itself being taken from outside the premises. Where if you were in the Mansfield Town area and spotted this black Land Cruiser or perhaps another vehicle travelling with it, we'd ask you to contact Ardigard Station with any information. Okay. So, Michael, um, as you can see from the incidents today, there's a large number of burglaries, or a number of burglaries, I should say, occurring in the Louth and Mead area. So we'd like to just tell your listeners about two initiatives which may help in the prevention of some of the burglaries. Very good. So, um, the Guardi in Castle Bellingham have recently held property marking in evenings and this is in conjunction with the Guard of Crime Prevention Officer. So we're, they were advising people on how best to mark and record their valuable property. And if this is something maybe that your listeners would be interested in, we'd ask them to contact their local guard station. Maybe they could arrange a local community meeting and advise residents of how the property marking should be done. And finally then, we can, if we can just highlight a national campaign by Angarda Shikana, it's called Lock Up and Light Up. So it outlines some small steps that we can all do to make our home less inviting, hopefully, to burglars. So it's, we just advise to remember to turn on some lights, whether you're at home or not. And possibly if you have timers, you could put your lights on timers so that even if you're not at home, that the lights will be on. We'd advise people to store keys away from windows, doors and letterboxes and not to keep any large amounts of cash or jewellery in the house. Okay, worth thinking about. I guess if we think about it, we'll all uh, know how best to protect our our properties, uh, but food for thought at the same time. Thank you indeed. Garda Sharon White of RD Station. We'll return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. Thanks to Vera, who's been texting us. She says that as a hairdresser for many years, clients do trust and confide in their stylist, and she's heard many stories of abuse over the years. Sorry to hear that, uh, but... Undoubtedly, it's good in the sense that uh, people know now that they can go and get directed uh, to some support uh, if uh, they do speak to their stylist. Thanks, Vera. Thanks, everybody who has been in touch. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Mannies and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.